This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So usually on our show, if you've been listening for a while, you know this, we try to take a broad look at history and encompass as much of the world as we can. And we especially try to do this when we're talking about the history of something, like colors or knitting or peanut butter. And even when we've talked about the something being an American product like Spam, we've also tried to look at how Spam made its way into other cultures and cuisines. So today's episode is really not that. <laughs> uh for about the last 18 months, various folks have asked us to talk about wedding history, uh, either a complete history of marriage, which is way too broad for a 30-minute show, or sort of a history of various wedding traditions and where they come from. So I started trying to research that one, and the research led me in a little bit of a different direction, which is a brief history of the so-called white wedding. So the term White Wedding was first coined in the spring of 1840 in the British monthly Metropolitan Magazine. And at the time, a white wedding was just a wedding in which the bride wore a white dress. But since then, it's come to suggest some other particular rituals and kind of trappings. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We definitely know that there are all kinds of beautiful and touching and fascinating wedding traditions from all over the world and all over history. And that even within the United States, there are tons and tons of regional and cultural and religious specifics. But what we're really talking about today is this idea of the white wedding, particularly in Britain and the United States, and some of the things that have become most closely associated with it. First up, the piece most listeners probably know the very basics of already. Uh, white wedding dresses are just about ubiquitous today because Queen Victoria got married in one in 1840. Before that, there was a lot more variety in wedding dresses, including white ones. And most people, particularly outside of the aristocracy, basically got married in the best clothing that they owned. It was often their church clothes or a new dress that they intended to use for special events going forward from their wedding. You did not get married in a white dress. Heck no. I'm a spiller. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I got married in a red dress because I got married at Christmas and I'm ridiculous right. and I spill things. So anything pale was going to be a danger. 
Sure. So for people that thought it was like a big cultural statement on my part and I was doing some Jezebel jam, I just spill no. stuff and I don't look great in white. So that was pretty much the, the motivation. <laughs> and you're actually not getting married in white. I'm also not getting married in white. I'm getting married in blue because I want to. And because it's beautiful on you. Oh, thank you. So a little about the couple of Victoria and Albert uh, before we get to their actual wedding and what she was wearing, because this wedding is going to come up again. Victoria met her future husband, Albert of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha in 1836 when she was 16 and not yet on the throne. He had been invited to London for her 17th birthday celebration. Albert and Victoria were cousins, and Albert had actually heard when he was small that Probably he ought to get married to Victoria one day. So that was an idea that was already in his head. And at this first meeting, Victoria was immediately taken with him. She thought he was handsome, and the two of them spent a lot of time together during this visit. Victoria was terribly sad when Albert left for Brussels that June, and she wrote his father, Leopold, a letter saying, quote, I must thank you, my beloved uncle, for the prospect of great happiness you have contributed to give me in the person of dear Albert. Allow me then, my dearest uncle, to tell you how delighted I am with him and how much I like him in every way. He possesses every quality that could be desired to render me perfectly happy. He is so sensible, so kind, and so good, and so amiable, too. He has, besides, the most pleasing and delightful exterior and appearance you can possibly see. And from there, she basically admonishes her uncle to keep her cousin safe for her. She liked him a lot. She liked him heaps. It's one of the things that makes me love Victoria. It's just her adoration of Albert. Uh... It's so touching and sweet to me. Yeah. So once she had ascended to the throne and decided she was ready to get married, which she didn't do immediately, she invited Albert and his brother Ernst to Windsor Castle in October of 1839, essentially to choose between the two of them uh, for the sake of strengthening political ties. And she was basically set on Albert to be her husband the minute she saw him again, probably, to be honest, even before that. She proposed a few days later and then wrote in her diary, Oh, to feel I was and am loved by such an angel as Albert was too great delight to describe. He is perfection. Oh, how I love and adore him. I cannot say. Yeah. And just in case anybody uh, raised an eyebrow, I bet most of our listeners would know, but she had to propose to him. Yeah. Sometimes people try to. It would not have been cool for a a non- a man who was not her equal to propose to her as queen. Right. Sometimes people like sort of describe that as as a, a feminist statement in some way. No, she was the monarch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just would have been completely inappropriate for him to to ask her to marry him. Right. That was that was the protocol. That was how it went. Uh, and they married on February 10th of 1840 with Albert in a British field marshal's uniform. And here's how Victoria described her own wedding outfit in her diary. Quote, I wore a white satin dress with a deep flounce of Honiton lace, an imitation of an old design. My jewels were my Turkish diamond necklace and earrings and dear Albert's beautiful sapphire brooch. She also had a wreath of orange blossoms on her head, and the dress had a long train, which 12 train bearers carried. And these train bearers were also in white with wreaths of roses in their hair. There are paintings of the wedding. or There are photos of her in the dress later on, but in terms of the wedding itself, most of what exists now is paintings. It definitely looks like a capital W, capital D, wedding dress. <laughs> like, Yeah, for sure. You could, 
You could put it on a bride today. It would be right at home. Yeah, no one would be like, that doesn't look like a wedding dress. They would be like, that looks like a very stylized wedding dress, but it clearly reads as a wedding dress. And apart from the fact that Victoria tended to be a trendsetter in terms of things that we now think of as traditional, including, for example, Christmas trees, this wedding dress was a big deal, and it was a huge public spectacle. The last time a reigning queen of England had gotten married was 1554, so you can imagine how much anticipation surrounded this wedding. And it was, of course, a big deal for the couple, too. They were apart for much of their engagement because Albert had to settle his affairs before he could move to London permanently. Victoria certainly was not the first woman ever in history to get married in a white dress. She was not even the first royal woman to get married in a white dress, but it quickly became the fashion among England's most affluent women. And from there, it started to spread out into the rest of British society and then onto the United States and elsewhere. Within about a decade, this is what really cracks me up. People were writing about white wedding dresses as though they had always been the standard thing to wear. In August of 1849, when covering the etiquette of the trousseau, uh, Godey's Ladies Book began with, quote, Custom has decided from the earliest ages that white is the most fitting hue. And at this point, Victoria's white wedding dress was only nine years in the past. It was definitely not back to the earliest ages. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, uh, some flowery prose around it that gives it some fake history. <laughs> and that will happen again more times in this episode. Yeah, that same piece that Tracy just referenced also advocates white flowers for the bride, preferably orange blossoms, which Queen Victoria had worn in her hair, or white rosebuds. And blasts bouquets as an awkward fashion meant to solve the problem of what to do with your hands during the ceremony. Orange blossoms continued to be a very popular wedding flower throughout the Victorian era. I don't think they really are. I don't know about it in, in Britain, but in the U.S., when you look at lists of most popular wedding flowers, like you don't really have orange blossoms up at the top anymore. No. Uh, you can hear a little more about Victoria and Albert's wedding, as well as for other historical weddings in the past episode five, Showstopping Historical Weddings, which was hosted by a pretty rare pairing of past hosts of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It is Sarah and Candace. So it is post-Katie, pre-Dublina in the host arc of our show. Yeah. Uh, and after we have a brief sponsor break, we're going to talk about cake. Yay! Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Now on to cake. Yes, please. Cakes. Yes, cakes have been part of wedding celebrations across many cultures going all the way back to antiquity. Although, to be clear, sometimes the word cake has been a catch-all kind of term for all kinds of cakey, bready, biscuity kind of things. So it didn't necessarily mean cake uh, like people think of today. Uh, but today... The stereotypical wedding cake is this tiered confection. It is often white. Sometimes there are pillars between the tiers, and there's usually a topper on top. And we once again look to the Victorians for that pattern. Do you have a topper on your cake? Well, yes and no. Uh, we, we are not having a tiered wedding cake. We have a thing that will serve as a topper, but it's probably going to be a table decoration and not physically on the cake. Gotcha. Um, because the cakes are being brought by our caterer, and uh, we won't necessarily have somebody on hand to touch up the the frosting or whatever. Gotcha. Just curious. Yeah. Just curious. <laughs> <laughs> we will, in fact, have four cakes. Nice. One of them, when you eat it, will turn your teeth and tongue and lips blue because it is very, very blue in color. I can't wait. We had uh, Star Wars action figures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know a couple people who've done that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to spoil what, what it is, but... Uh, it, I'm excited. It, it's, not, it's not out of place in the realm of a world where people have Star Wars action figures as their topper. Hooray! Uh, but back to our story, in 18th century Britain, the typical wedding cake was a plum cake. And when we say plum, what that means is dried fruits, not just plums. And that had ties to foods that had been around since the medieval period. It was one low layer of fruit cake covered in almond paste and topped with a stiff white sugar icing. And this was the traditional cake served at weddings in Britain for at least a century. Learning this answered a question that had always confused me, which is that we would be watching a movie or a TV show or something that was set in 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 Britain and it had a wedding as a scene and somebody would say they didn't like wedding cake. And I would always be like, what do you mean you don't like wedding cake? It is cake at a wedding. How I don't understand. And it's because, uh, like, in Britain, wedding cake is a different thing than, like, birthday cake. Or at least it was. It, well, still, still, you can still, uh, I don't actually know if, if, if today most people use, 
um, like a plum cake is their wedding cake in Britain or not. You definitely, there are lots of recipes and stuff online if you're interested in seeing what the ingredients are like. So anyway, uh, this idea of a sort of low, flat plum cake as a wedding cake started changing after the French Revolution with this influx of French chefs and French foods into Britain. And toward the latter half of the 19th century, especially in aristocratic families, food, including the food that was served at weddings, increasingly became a mark of status. Bigger, fancier foods, ideally prepared by a French master chef, was really just the thing to do. And French chefs started experimenting with more elaborate cakes. Queen Victoria's cake uh, was a lavishly decorated plum cake. It was 10 feet in diameter. It weighed 300 pounds. That's a lot of cake. Uh, it was technically a one-layer cake, although its topper did have a tiered look. And decorations on the cake included a sculpture of Britannia blessing the couple who were dressed in Roman clothing and surrounded by children and animals. It was also covered in the hard white sugar icing that, thanks to its association with Victoria's wedding cake, you would now recognize under the name of royal icing. The first tiered wedding cake debuted at London's Crystal Palace in 1851. <coughs> We've had an episode about the Crystal Palace in the archive. And by the time Victoria and Albert's children started to get married, the idea of wedding cake in Britain was quite established as this multiple-tiered plum cake. When her oldest daughter, Princess Victoria, married Frederick Wilhelm of Prussia in 1858, that couple's cake was a colossally tall and heavily adorned triple-layer cake, although only the bottom layer was actually cake. The upper ones were really made of this icing and not meant to be eaten Unless you loved eating plain royal icing. I was just going to say, I would totally eat that. (laughs) Uh, At King George V's wedding in 1893, that cake had four tiers, separated by columns. By the 1890s, cake decorators were also using piping to decorate cakes. And that was a technique that had been around since the middle of the century, but it really hadn't fallen into heavy use until then. Wedding cake in Britain continued to be this tiered fruit cake with royal icing until the 1980s, at which point softer icing and sugar flowers started to become more popular than the really stiff royal icing had been before. And the United States really followed Britain's trend in terms of the basic shape of a wedding cake with tiers and sometimes columns. I think columns seem to be kind of out of fashion now, but I know when I was a child and and people would talk about weddings like columns between the tiers was a really big thing. Oh, in the 80s, it was huge. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, But, you know, in the United States, the cake itself has normally been cake, not plum cake, like cake made of flour and sugar and things and not lots of dried fruit in there. Yeah. Uh, And things are also loosening up a lot around wedding cake designs. A lot of them are still the same basic tiered shapes, but colors and decorations have really branched out. I'm sure people have seen online those um, pieces of footage of cakes that have projections onto them so that before you cut into it, Disney does them for some of their weddings. And I've seen them at, at other events where there are things that are like animated dancing around the cake before you cut into it. But that that's obviously not on the cake. It's projected. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, the, the idea of a groom's cake emerged in Britain in the 17th century, but it eventually fell out of favor there. It was basically smaller than the bride's cake, also full of fruit, and it was cut up and given to guests to take home as a symbol of good luck. The groom's cake morphed into a cake that was decorated according to the groom's tastes, often stereotypically masculine hobbies in the United States. We're not having a groom's cake because, as we said before, 
having four normal cakes, not a wedding cake. Yeah, we didn't have a groom's cake either, but part of that was a space issue. We got married in a movie theater, uh, like right. a little art house cinema, and there just wasn't that much space to lay out food. So we had to be pretty judicious in our choices. Nice. Yeah. You want to talk about wedding rings now? Yeah, we're going to talk about wedding rings. And these have really also been around like cake since antiquity. We know that wedding rings existed in ancient Greece and, and in Rome, and they may have evolved from the practice of breaking a coin in half with one half of the coin going to each half of the couple. There's been huge variation through the ages about how rings have been worn, what they were made of, whether they had stones, and if so, what kind, and whether they were part of the wedding ceremony at all. Some religions' wedding services have included exchanges of rings or giving a ring to the bride from the groom, while others have strictly forbidden that practice as being a mark of vanity. So basically, throughout most of history, rings have been associated with weddings in a lot of the world, but they were not standardized for a very long time. And the same is actually true of engagement rings. So like white wedding dresses, today they seem almost ubiquitous, but at various points in history, they have almost entirely disappeared. Often rings have still been given as a token of affection, but not necessarily as a formal sign of engagement. This sort of uh, non-standard, all-over-the-place, whatever-you-want treatment of rings and engagement rings really started to shift in the late 18th and early 19th centuries following the, following the discovery of diamond mines in South Africa. That is when jewelry makers started advertising engagement rings as a necessity, and that included an attempt to establish uh, engagement rings for men as a standard, but that didn't really ever take off. In 1928, De Beers hired N.W. Ayer and Son as its advertising agency, and the agency began positioning diamonds as rare, important family heirlooms. By 1943, a clear majority of women in the U.S. were being given diamond engagement rings. In 1948, copywriter Frances Garrity coined the slogan, A Diamond is Forever, that is still being used today, basically cementing the idea that the diamond was the only stone suitable for an engagement ring. And with that came the idea that when a woman got married, her wedding ring would be worn alongside her diamond engagement ring. Also in the 1940s was a marketing push by jewelers to get couples to buy two rings, one for the bride and one for the groom, uh, and to have a ceremony that included the exchange of both rings. This gradually caught on both through deliberate efforts to educate people, which were carried out by the jewelry companies, and through people simply going to weddings where their friends and family members exchanged rings with each other rather than just the groom giving the ring to the bride. By the 1950s, the double ring ceremony was pretty common across most denominations, at least in the United States. Uh, I know when my parents got married in the 60s, they had a double ring ceremony. Oh, I just have no idea because, I mean, I guess they both wore rings, but I never thought about it <laughs> with my parents. Uh, but so the point is that the double ring ceremony and the diamond engagement ring are really pretty recent inventions. But they're ones that have been made to seem like this is a long and lasting tradition. Basically the same thing that happened with the white dress. And even if they're not actually ubiquitous, business and marketers talk about them as though this is the standard and only way. The idea of standardizing things is a big part of why the word wedding for a lot of people conjures up so much very specific imagery. And we're going to talk about how that standardization came to be after another brief word from a sponsor. So I have recently made uh, probably the last pre-wedding update to the wedding website that I built on Squarespace. (laughs) The one... 
The one where literally two weeks before the wedding, I was like, oh, I should take off this part that says save the date. And I should put in part about important details that people actually need on the day. There you go. That was super, super easy change to make, super intuitive. The way the website works made it extremely easy for me to just take off the parts that I didn't need, add in the parts that I did need uh, without affecting all the other pieces that were already there and like I wanted that I didn't need to make any kind of changes to. Uh, I have been really, really happy with the look of the website that I was able to make, how easy it was how it really felt like us uh, and felt like something that we were happy to have associated with our wedding without becoming something that required me to do hours and hours of work. It really was the, a matter of, you know, the first time around, uh, a couple hours sitting on my bed with my laptop and then updating it uh, five or ten minutes here and there. Really easy, awesome, and intuitive. Some great things about Squarespace are that your sites look professionally designed regardless of your personal skill level uh, you don't need to know how to code. The tools are all very intuitive and very easy to use. You get a free domain if you sign up for a year, which I did. Uh, and you can start your free trial today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. So one more time, start your free trial today at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code HISTORY for 10% off your first purchase. And now back to our story. So today in the United States, weddings are nearly synonymous with excess. The Knot.com, for example, regularly publishes the results of surveys of its users, which suggests that the average U.S. wedding today costs $31,213, with half of couples spending $18,086 or more. And every time they do, there is a lot of press that you could really summarize as $30,000. That's absurd. Weddings nowadays are atrocious. You should also note that these numbers are kind of skewed in favor of the sorts of people planning the types of weddings that the not would be useful, right? Right. So probably people who are, are going to be spending a little bit more. So if you uh, did a survey through Offbeat Bride, they would, would be probably have very different numbers, yeah. Yes, and like a practical wedding, much smaller dollar amounts, most likely. Yeah. Um. So, but anyway, when when these numbers come out, Every year or, or as often as they come out, uh, usually the articles written about them then go to the, into the idea that the reason for all this expense is the existence of a wedding industry that charges couples more for weddings than for other big events and basically pushes the idea that the wedding needs to be a certain relatively expensive way. So, yes, there really is a wedding industry. It is really made up of a lot of smaller industries. And, yes, it is huge. And, yes, stuff costs more when it's for a wedding rather than for some other event. And one more yes, this collection of industries puts a lot of work into standardizing the idea of wedding and marketing that idea to couples and specifically to brides. Having been to a few bridal expos, oh, boy, yep. can I corroborate this. Yep. Uh, well, and having done things like shop for a wedding cake and seen how much more expensive a wedding cake is per serving than any other cake is per serving, there's definitely a wedding markup in a lot of goods and services. However, this is not a new thing. It did not come about with like the big trend in tiered wedding cakes in the 1980s. The idea of a wedding industry and a backlash around that industry's existence really goes back one more time to the latter half of the 19th century, once again, around the same time that Queen Victoria got married. 
We're not blaming Queen Victoria for this. In this case, it's kind of coincidental. Before the 1840s in Britain and the United States, there really wasn't one standard thing that came to mind when someone said wedding. A lot of people simply got married in the parlor of their home or perhaps in a church or a chapel. People, especially people who were not wealthy, wore the nicest clothes that they already owned, and there was usually a nice meal or maybe even a dance afterward. But right about the same time that Victoria and Albert got married... The idea of wedding started to become a lot more standardized, and this standardization affected the weddings themselves and the gifts for the couple. Basically, businesses started to market things, particularly to brides, as being for weddings. Advertisements positioned goods as being gifts for newlyweds. Etiquette manuals and magazines reinforced what was expected at these weddings on the part of both the couple and their guests. And people started to pick up on the idea that there was a particular way to do a wedding as they went to the weddings of their friends and loved ones, even if they weren't reading all these etiquette manuals and looking at all these advertisements. Expectations around gift giving were one aspect of this 19th century wedding standardization. By 1850, upper class couples could expect the value of their wedding gifts to total around $25,000. In the U.S., following the Civil War, a number of brides' diaries detail their getting between 100 and 200 gifts, many of which were specifically for and about the bride. I should note once again that we're basically talking about uh, affluent mostly white couples who were writing about their gifts in this case. Around this same time, silver makers also started advertising silverware as sets that you could buy pieces of to add up to the bride's full collection of place settings. Companies expanded the number of patterns they offered and also the number of types of utensils, basically with the hope of selling more silverware as wedding gifts. Advertisers also took care to specify that silver became a keepsake and an heirloom, much like what uh, we've already discussed, which would happen later on in the timeline with diamonds. Other types of merchants later followed the example of silver makers with things like uh, china and dinnerware and things like that coming out in lots of patterns that you could register for. These first efforts to market individual pieces of silverware settings as gifts didn't have quite the level of organization that you see today. Like now we have registries that tick down the number of forks that are still needed as people purchase them. And there are numerous 19th century diary entries from brides bemoaning their sudden possession of dozens of coffee spoons and oyster forks. Yep. (laughs) People were really just buying up all those spoons and forks. I would imagine like the cheapest things in the settings often were the ones most popular. Yeah. And since there wasn't a registry that kept track of who had bought what, people would wind up with these like giant collections of spoons. So drops in the price of silver and methods for silver plating also made silver more accessible outside the upper class in the late 19th century, which meant that silverware pieces became common gifts among a bigger range of economic classes. In 1868, in Harper's New Monthly Magazine was this passage, quote, There are few families among us so poor as not to have a few ounces of silver plate, and forlorn indeed must be the bride who does not receive upon her wedding day some articles made of this beautiful metal. With all this focus on wedding gift giving came an equally firm insistence among 19th century etiquette manuals that brides must handwrite a thank you note to each person who gave her a gift. Thanks, 19th century wedding manuals. Uh, Magazines and etiquette manuals started solidifying other aspects of weddings as well. 
documenting what brides should wear to a wedding, how many bridesmaids there should be and who they should be, and uh, that the bride and the groom should arrive at the wedding venue separately, and on and on. All of the things that are very common today. Etiquette manuals really standardized a lot of what was expected at the wedding, down to the fact that the groom must look at the bride intently as she comes down the aisle. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like this whole idea of coming down the aisle with the groom looking at the bride, you know, in the case of, of opposite sex couples is so like, it's so ubiquitous that even when people are having a wedding that in a lot of ways is not really traditional, that is still a part of it. Like there is still almost always a processional of some sort (laughs) with the bride approaching the groom. Like, that's just how it works now. Which I've always felt silly, which is why mine was very silly. Uh, you'll see today a lot of videos of people breaking into dance and whatever. I didn't want to do that. But what I did do was have Santa give me away. So everybody kind of chuckled and it was not so solemn and it was fun and joyous and giggly. Yeah. That's sweet. <laughs> The very idea that there would be a reception following the wedding, not just a meal or a dance or a social, but a reception seems to have come about during this time, too. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the first use of the word wedding reception in writing was in a diary entry in 1871. The U.S. resisted some of this commercial influence into weddings for at least a little while. But by the turn of the 20th century, weddings were big business in the States as well, with the price of weddings doubling between 1910 and 1920. That trend reversed itself during the Great Depression, but then it picked up full steam again after World War II. As we just alluded to a few moments ago, these standards continue to be really culturally ingrained, and they hold up and continue to be the way people do things, even as the types of couples getting married has changed. Uh, Katrina Kemport of the University of California, San Francisco, actually studied wedding photographs of same-sex couples' weddings uh, as same-sex weddings became more and more common, and she found that more than two-thirds of lesbian couples tended to have one member of the couple dressed as the bride and the other dressed as the groom, while gay men tended to have both men dressed as grooms. So this idea of what a bride looks like and what a groom looks like continuing to be standard, uh, even as the the couple getting married is is not so much what has been like at people's at the front of people's imagination with the word wedding for a long time. It's a fascinating industry. It is a fascinating industry. It's fascinating to me how much of this comes off as well. This is how it's always been, and it no, it's <laughs> this is how it's been mostly since the nineteenth century. Yeah, uh, I I was originally planning to research things like why we wear veils and why there is a bouquet toss. And uh, what I found over and over was that all of the sources would say the same thing. Like a bride wears a veil to protect her from evil spirits and a bride's a bride has multiple bridesmaids to protect her from evil spirits. There's a lot of protecting from evil spirits, but none of them are actually sourced back <laughs> to a primary source at all. But when I started trying to get to a primary source on any of it, instead, this led me all down the path of Victorians and their weddings that are now just the way that most people do it. Well, and whenever I read all of those, because there are a lot of like the evil spirits. um, So many things are about evil spirits, according to all of the wedding websites. I pictured the one horrible wedding that went awry because it was beset by evil spirits. (laughs) That made everyone go, we got to find ways to ward these guys off. (laughs) 
So like we said at the top of the show, like we know there are so many different aspects to, to weddings and so many different traditions and so many different pieces of history that have led to things that people do in weddings today. But like this relatively narrow path is the path the research took me down this time. <laughs> do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. This is actually a uh, a listener Facebook comment that I emailed to myself so I wouldn't lose it. Um, and it is from Charles, and it is about our episode on the uh, the Tupac Amaru Rebellion. And Charles says, as a retired scholar of Andean and Inca, not a typo, is how it should be rendered, which is with a K, history, anthropology, and linguistics, and the Quechua language for over 30 years, I liked this. Largely accurate, but not exact. First of all, Quechuan languages predate the Inca Empire based on its proto uh Amara, which is still spoken, and I have also studied to a lesser degree. Here's a bit of clarification. Quechua, as the language is commonly referred to, is not the name of the language, although it has been adopted by most as such, mainly by sociolinguists that want easy mapping and statistics. It is the name of the people, people of the High Valley. Their name for their language was and remains Runasimi, which is translated as man's speech, but sociolinguistic trends have blurred this distinction. Quechua as a language has evolved into many distinct dialects that were similar in syntax, but varied widely by phonetic and phonological inventory. This was because the Andes geologically created huge geographical separations. For example, Mbabura Quechua from Ecuador, which has no glottal stops, is quite distinct from Cusco or Cochabamba Quechua, where glottal stops influence syntax, phonology, and final meaning. It is not inconceivable that given the broad geographical spread that the rebellion had lacked effective, clear communication, resulting in the final bloodbath that began on its periphery. They had no clear understanding of each other. He then goes on to suggest some books uh, if the Inca conquest is interesting to people, including The Conquest Conquest of the Incas by John Hemming. Uh, And that, again, is from Charles. Thank you so much, Charles. It is always awesome to hear from people who have specialized knowledge in a particular thing. Um, that can shed further light beyond what was available in the sources that were available to us. Yes. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. Uh, our Instagram is MissedInHistory. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our parent company website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word Royal Weddings in the search bar, and you'll find an article called 10 Wacky Pieces of Royal Wedding Memorabilia. And this is about a whole other odd thing that we didn't really get into, which is selling souvenirs when royals get married. Uh, you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. You'll find an archive of every episode we've ever done and show notes for the episodes Holly and I have done and a lot of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business. The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready 
curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears.